sinner. Chapters 1 through 3. The Bible talks about in chapters Romans 1. Chapters. This is going to be a very long night forewarning all of you. I'm probably going to have a repeat like I did last week where I did like point two before point one. But bear with me if that's the case. Yeah, bro. Remember the... Never mind, we'll get to it. (laughs) Chapters four through six, or four through five rather, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is painting the picture of the Savior. What salvation actually is. What hope is there for the sinner in Romans chapters one through three. And then the last couple weeks, we ventured into this new territory, chapters 6 through 8, where Paul, after he's already addressed the entire world is under sin, and what Jesus Christ did to reconcile the world to God the Father, now he goes into this whole dissertation about what is it like now that we have been justified by faith in the shed blood of Christ. Romans chapter 6, and this is new for you in case you guys are one to take notes. Romans chapter 6 is talking about the Christian's position in where? What's the phraseology we've been doing for the last three weeks? In Christ. If you have been spiritually baptized, meaning that the Holy Spirit of God, in what Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians 2 talk about, the circumcision made without hands where you have been severed from this body of flesh and you placed inside of Christ because you have been justified by the blood of the Lamb, you are positionally in Christ. means that the body of sin is dead to you. You are free. That's why last week we looked in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, talking about this freedom we have in Christ because we're in Him. But then two weeks ago we saw how in chapter 7, even though the body of sin, we're dead to it. It has no more power over us. Chapter 7 is still talking about the, wow, Christian's position in Christ. It's hard to write on the board whilst talking at the same time, especially after the day and week that I've had. Well, I guess I don't really have room to talk given present company in the back room. Christian's position in Christ, chapter 7 we saw a couple weeks ago, is talking about our problem... In the flesh. Because even though we're dead to this body of sin, we're not completely set free yet, are we? We still have this body. We're still caught in this body. We still think, say, and do things that are displeasing to God. But it's good. We got good news. And as we saw last week, or began to see last week, chapter 8, we saw that our power to overcome is through the Spirit. Chapter 8 is all about the Christian's power through the Spirit to overcome the problems that we looked at in chapter 7. This flesh. The things that we don't want to do, we do. And the things we do want to do, we don't do. And the only way to come against that flesh, to come against that mindset on a daily basis, is to recognize, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we begin in chapter 8, and look at your outline for review. Again, as Paul is going through this dissertation, it's his playbook for righteousness. He goes through systematically and breaks down the teachings of the Bible. We started looking how in chapter 8 we see all of these privileges and promises that God has given to each and every single one of us who are in Christ. They're birthrights, if you will. They're gifts that have been bestowed upon us now that we have been positionally placed in Christ, though we have problems in the flesh, the birthrights that we're seeing, the privileges and promises of chapter 8, that's the power through the Spirit to overcome the problems in the flesh. Just talked about our freedom last week, how we are not free or we're free to serve Christ, not bound to the law, not bound to the body of our flesh. We're free to pursue God with everything that's in us. So how have you been this past week? How have you been in your pursuit? Because each and every single one of us are pursuing something in here. Some of us were pursuing a career. Some of us were pursuing college. We're pursuing not just good grades, but exquisite grades. I almost just combined astounding, excellent, and exquisite into one super word that wouldn't have made any sense. 
We're pursuing that with everything that we have. Some of us, we're pursuing our sport. We're pursuing maybe a career that we just started or want to start, or we're already focused on that. And not that there's anything wrong with those things. But are you pursuing where God is wanting you to pursue? Are you pursuing what God is wanting you to pursue? Are you pursuing after Him as a deer does the water brooks in Psalm 42? Are you following hard after Him? Are you chasing after God? Are you getting after it in the Word every single morning or at night if you miss the morning time? If not, who are you pursuing? If not God, who? There's only two religions in the world. There's God's way, and then there's... Your way. Exactly. Self. You're chasing and pursuing after self. Proverbs 18.2. I love it. I mentioned it last week. A fool, a fool has no desire but to hear that his heart has discovered itself. That the heart may discover itself. It's a mentality and a phraseology and a philosophy that is prevalent in your schools right now. It's going to be even more prevalent in colleges and universities. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. What the heart wants, the heart wants. Well, that's just the problem. Because according to Jeremiah 17:9, my heart is desperately wicked. Not just wicked, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. A fool hath no delight in that a heart discovers itself. I don't think I want to know the depths of what's in my heart. I just want to lay down my heart on the altar every single day and say, Lord, I mortify what the desires of my heart are, and uh, I'm going to put off the old man. I'm just going to let you live your life through me because that was the plan ever since eternity passed. More on that by the end of tonight. We talked about that last week, so how's your walk been? We saw in letter B on your outline, a privilege. Not only are you free to pursue God all the days of your life, but you're free from the bondage of your past because you've been adopted by the Father. We started talk, touching on this yesterday, or last week. Look at verse 14. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of what? Everybody in verse 15, Romans 8. What spirit, if you're in Christ, did you receive? Adoption. Adoption. You have been adopted into the family of God. And as I mentioned last week, some of you that are in this room and even some of you that are affiliated listening to the podcast with our ministry, you know that and you have something that's won over on everybody else because you know what that's like personally. And the beautiful thing about this doctrine is that this is talking about what has happened to each and every single one of us the moment we received Christ. We were separated from our original father, our birth father, our father the devil, who wanted nothing but destruction for us and who hated us and wanted nothing to do with us other than it was just to keep us away from glorifying our father in heaven. And yet Jesus Christ had mercy on us and sent His Son to adopt us into His beautiful, glorious family. It's a privilege that we have being sons of God. And with that comes an inheritance that He gives us. But, as we saw in verse 18, not only are we heirs, we're joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We ended last week looking at these privileges and promises. Really talking about what he goes on to talk about as far as the, the, the end result of our adoption. See, at the moment you were placed in Christ, at the moment of your salvation, you were adopted spiritually speaking. Your soul and your spirit... According to Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 6, you want to quote it or you can paraphrase it if you want. He hath made us to sit in heavenly places with Him. There you go. All right. It's been a couple weeks since we worked on that. Get ready for it on Friday. I'm going to quiz you again. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, the Bible says the moment we got saved, we are seated in heavenly places right now at this very moment in time. But are you physically there right now? No. But basically, he's saying it's as good and it's as sure as happening. We're waiting 
for the adoption of our body. It's the last component, I guess you can say, of our salvation. Yeah, our soul and our spirit have been saved the moment we received Christ, but we still have this imperfect body. To complete the adoption process, we are going to get a glorified body. We're going to exchange, as Philippians 3 says, this vile body for a body that is like unto His glorious body. That also is equated to salvation in the Bible. That is the redemption of our body, the salvation of our body, and that happens the moment we go home. And we talked about that. We talked about how man in heaven, we're never going to shed, well, we will shed tears. The Bible doesn't say you're not going to have tears. He just says that he's going to take care of all of our tears for us and wipe them away. But you realize that all of the hell that you will ever experience is here on this earth if you're saved. You want to know what hell's like if you're a Christian? You're living it now. If if you're not just completely coasting, that is, and getting too comfortable here on this earth as though it's your home. You want to know what heaven is going to be like for all of those who are lost? They're living it right now. This is as good as heaven's going to get for them. It's interesting. We talked about, and we ended last week talking about this idea of suffering, because... Suffering now will make it all worth it, all worthwhile, when we actually get to be with Him. Hold your place here and turn over to Revelation chapter 4. I didn't change up the study sheet, but you guys want to probably write down some notes. Either do it on the space that you have or on the back of your study sheet, because we're actually going to begin tonight's lesson here. Still kind of a review from last week. But it's new. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Father, I knew after the week I had that uh, I was needing to go here. Because I can get so caught up in this world, in the events that are going on, the events that are unfolding, I get so caught up in my job. And how it just eats away at me and wears away at me. And even just uh, this world working in tandem with my flesh to just make me even more tired and fatigued and angry and aggravated. And how it just eats away at your soul when you let things like that just affect you. And it's taken my focus off of these very truths that we're going to open up our study with tonight. So it's not a surprise to me that I'm stuttering and stammering through this entire review. It's not a surprise to me that I'm as exhausted as I am and I did not want to come to church tonight. I wanted to stay home. And I didn't feel like getting up here and teaching tonight, if I'm being honest. So I thank you for these passages and I hope that uh, as we read them that it would tie in perfectly with what we are studying in Romans chapter 8 as I know your spirit will guide it there. But I pray also that it would cause us to take our focus off of ourselves, that it will cause us to take our focus off of this world, and that it will cause us to see heaven. Because it might just be a matter of mere days, weeks, or months before we are living out Revelation 4, 5, and 11. So may we get ready for eternity. May we get ready tonight. Get me out of the way and just speak, Lord, in your name. Amen. Revelation chapter 4. We've talked extensively in this class. Revelation 2 and 3 are church history. Chapter 4. After this, I, John speaks, looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a what? Trumpet. Talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. What's going on here in chapter 4, verse 1? To John, who is a picture or a typology of the church. What happened here? What event? Church history just happened in chapters 2 and 3. What happens as soon as church history is over? Say it out loud. The rapture. The rapture. John is a picture of the church, and after the church is over in chapter 3... Heaven opens up, 
Someone comes down partway and calls someone up all the way. And it was John going up and he's caught up into heaven. And immediately, verse 2, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he talks about this experience when he sees this rainbow round about in heaven. And verse 4, he says, around the throne were four and twenty seats, twenty-four seats. Upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads what? Crowns of gold. We talked last week about when we suffer on this earth, when we choose not to get so comfortable here in our setting, when we choose not to get so comfortable in our flesh, in our world system, get not so comfortable in the activities that we find ourselves in at school, not so comfortable in, getting, in caring about what people think of us, what they say about us, and we decide to live for Christ, and we decide to suffer with Him, because in 1 Peter chapter 4, you realize we were actually called to suffer and even in the Gospels, Jesus himself said, if they hate you, it's because they hate me first. And I'm putting my spirit inside of you. Suffering's all part of the gig. We talked about if we suffer well, and if we obey him and serve him, we will get crowns, crowns of gold. We know that these four and 20 elders from comparing scripture with scripture, they are representative of the church. It's you and us, or you and me. It's us. Because the 4 and 20 elders, they also show up in Revelation chapter 19 with the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know what the marriage supper of the Lamb is? It's the Lamb who is who? Who is the Lamb that was slain? Jesus. Jesus. And He's marrying His bride. Who's the bride of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? It's... Don't, don't hesitate. If you're wrong, it's okay. Just say it. It's us. It's the church. These four and twenty elders, they are representative of the church, and they have crowns on them. And he talks about the sea of glass in verse 6. He talks about these beasts, as we've mentioned before. All four of these beasts, they are the supreme beings of their kingdom, and they represent the four gospels. We don't have time to look at it tonight. But look at verse 8. The four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to Him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders who are a picture of who? Us. They fall down before Him before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth for how long? Ever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, who's saying? The four and 20 elders who are, which are who? Us. So it's you and me one day. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I don't know what your week was like. I don't know what your school year is going like right now. Some of you I do. But as a by and large, and who knows, maybe there are certain things that you keep from us that you just aren't telling us about how your school year is going. Maybe it's going great. Maybe it sucks. Either way, if there's one thing that you can take away from this passage, how sucky your year might be, take away the fact that you were created because it makes Him happy. It pleased Him to form you when you were in your mother's womb. Pleased Him. Pleased Him to see you take your first breath. Pleased Him to watch over you your entire life with everything that you have going on. You were created for His pleasure. He gets pleasure out of you living. You are very valuable to Him. Didn't want to miss that opportunity. It wasn't in my notes, but I have a feeling that maybe somebody or multiple people needed to hear that. That's heaven. 
But he continues. Chapter 5, he talks about this book that was sealed with seven seals. And we talked not too long ago in our study of Revelation that the seven seals were the judgments that God was going to dish out on this planet after the church has been raptured out of here. When we're in heaven and he dishes out the judgment because he's getting ready to establish his throne in Jerusalem where his son would come back and rule and reign forever and ever. It's what the theme of the entire Bible is when you study Acts chapter 3. It's not the gospel. It's not the cross of Christ. The theme of the entire Bible is a throne and the king himself sitting on that throne, ruling and reigning. It's in every single book. It is known as the day of the Lord. And they ask, everyone is weeping, who's worthy to open up the book And then the Lamb comes forward. Verse 6 of chapter 5. I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the who? How many of them are there? And what are they a picture of? In the midst of them, us, stood a Lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns. You study horns throughout the Bible and you'll see, especially in the book of Daniel, that it is a a, a type of power. It's a picture of power. And he has seven eyes. You study out Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, you will find that there are seven spirits because he equates the eyes of the Lord here to the spirits, the seven spirits that God sent forth into all the earth. Check out Isaiah 11, verse 2. You'll see what those seven spirits are later. And he, verse 7, came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders, which are a picture of who? Us, you. What did they do? They fell down before the Lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. And what are those golden vials full of odors? The prayers of who? A saint is anyone who has been justified by faith in the blood of the spotless lamb, and they are placed in Christ. And what is God about to do here with this seven-sealed book? He's about to unleash the judgment upon the earth and basically come back and rule and reign. He's getting ready for the second coming of Christ where He sets up His throne. These prayers are prayers of the saints that you and I, according to Matthew, are praying for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right there you just read that all of your prayers about that coming day when Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion and rules and reigns forever, all the prayers that we've ever had about that day are stored up in these vials that bring a sweet-smelling odor to Him. So let me ask you, have you prayed for that day to come? Let me ask you this. Have you prayed for that day to come because you've just had enough? Because you're tired? Because you're sick of this flesh, you're sick of this world system? Or have you prayed for that day to come because you love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that you just want Him to get what He deserves? Worship, glory, honor, and praise that is due His name because of everything that He's done. I have prayed for that day to come, but it's mostly for selfish reasons. How many vials do you have stored up in heaven right now because you've prayed for His kingdom to come? Not as in a 
a prayer that we just redundantly speak because a lot of people at churches, they just pray that prayer. And the Bible even talks about in the book of Isaiah and Matthew that they might say it with their mouth, but their heart is far from Him. And as I just admitted, a lot of times my heart is near Him, but it's still pretty selfish with the reasons that I have for praying that His kingdom comes, for praying for this day, for Him to come back and for Him to get what He deserves. Verse 9, And they, that's us, sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. They sang a new song, which means that they haven't been singing new songs since probably back in Lucifer's day when he was leading the worship back in Genesis 1-1 and beyond. One day we're going to sing a new song in heaven. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. Why is he not slain anymore? Because he's alive. He ever liveth to make intercession for us in Hebrews 7. Thou hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. You as the church, if you're in Christ, will be singing that song with your brothers and sisters that have been saved on the mission field all throughout the world. And have made us our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. We talked last week in Romans 8. We will reign with him. Because He's made us kings and priests. We'll reign with Him if we suffer with Him. But if we're just getting too comfortable on this earth, too comfortable in our own skin, too comfortable doing our own thing, we're not going to have any crowns to lay at His feet. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the who? Verse 11. And the who? And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. He didn't even have a number. And what is it they're saying? Verse 12, with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature. Might want to mark that down because we're coming back to that in Romans 8 which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them. Does that include you? If you're in Christ, it does. Heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. For how long? Ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders, which are a type of who? us. They fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11. Talked before about how from Revelation 6 to 19, God is not talking about chronological events. No, just like he goes through the gospel four times over, he goes through the tribulation period through four different accounts. Now we're at the seven trumpets, which is, a, again, very similar to the seven seals we just read in Revelation 4 and 5. And here we have in Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign for how long? And the four and twenty elders, do I really have to repeat it? which sat before God on their seats. They're sitting down on their seats, just like God sat down when the work was finished. You realize, Christian, that in Ephesians chapter 6, three times when it's talking about the armor of God that you are supposed to put on daily, that we are to stand against the wiles of the devil, that we are to withstand against his fiery darts, and we are to do everything that we can to stand. Three times he mentions stand, stand, stand. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57 and 58 talks about how we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now's not the time to be sitting. In other words, that day's coming. Right now, 
We ought to be standing. We ought to be standing up for our king. We ought to be raising the banner proudly at our schools and living for him. And then one day we'll seat. One day we'll be seated and we'll sit down. But as we see in verse 16, what happens again? They fell upon their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty. O Lord God Almighty, His holiness, His power, His majesty, which art and wast and art to come. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Are you seeing a picture between these three chapters? Do you want to know what you, Christian, if you are a saint in Christ positionally, do you know what you will be doing forever? Hitting the deck. Falling on your face and singing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is your eternity. And as I asked last week, does that bore the living daylights out of you to think about doing that? If so, you might just be too comfortable on this planet. And you ought to get real uncomfortable real quick. Because as we saw in Revelation 4, 1, let me just tell you, the trumpet is out of the case. It might not be very long before you and I are right here. So a couple questions. Are you ready to live that eternity? falling down on your face and giving Him honor and praise and worship and adoration because it pleases Him? Not because you're going to get rewards out of it because the rewards are already dished out then. No, no, no. Doing it just because He actually is worthy and you actually believe Him to be worthy of that from you. Do you believe that? Because just as we're called to do this in eternity future, we're called to do this now. This is worship. Are you praying for that day to come? Not because you want all of those people who have said mean things to you, who have done horrible, horrendous things to you, not because you want them to get what's coming to them or you want your suffering from them to end, but because you just want His Son to get what He deserves. And are you suffering now but still standing so that you, like the four and twenty elders, can have your crowns to place before Him? If you want to write these passages down, do it. I was going to take you there tonight. Because I needed reminded of what my eternity was because I got so caught up in this stinking world this week. From my job, from this garbage that's going on in our country right now. I needed a glimpse and a reminder of what lies in store for me because I needed a shift of perspective. Write down 2 Timothy 4.8. That's one of the crowns you'll get. It's the crown of righteousness. And God gives it, you know who? To everyone who loves His appearing. Do you long and love His appearing? If I'm being honest with you guys, well, yeah, if I'm being honest, I did long for and love His appearing when I was your age. But there was a certain part of me where I'm like, man, I really hope the rapture doesn't come until after I'm married. Just being honest. And I can't imagine that there's not anyone in here that's also not wanting that day to come. But just as we've seen with Revelation 4, 5, and 11, does your desire for His Son to get what He wants trump your desire? 
You'd be inhuman if you didn't have some kind of selfish desire for that. It's natural. It's human. I was a Christian in high school too once. But if we could just get to the spot where we realize that for centuries upon millennium upon millennium, his son has been blasphemed, has had adulteries committed against him, has had blood shed of his creation that he gets pleasure out of, has had countless souls suffer and be deceived by false prophets and false teachers throughout millennium, damning several thousand and million souls to hell on an incredible rate. Out of all the centuries of the sin and the blasphemies and the lies and the deceit, for him to finally get what he deserves, worship for every knee to bow, for every tongue to confess that he is Lord. To get to the spot in your walk where you are pursuing him, to whereas that trumps even your desires, that'll put a smile on his face. 2 Timothy 4, 8, the crown of righteousness, loving his appearing. So do you? And we saw last week, this one, the crown of life. Yeah, it's the martyr's crown, but as we saw, if you suffer temptation, suffer in this flesh, and don't give in to it, don't give in to what your friends are wanting you to do, don't give in to what you want to do, don't give in to what this world is telling you to do, but you suffer, you die to self, become a martyr to yourself daily, you will get that crown of life at that day, and you'll be able to cast it down, and you will be able to actually say, worthy is the Lamb. Can you imagine? I'll hold it for the end. 1 Corinthians 9.25. Write that down. That's a crown for those who are temperate. Those who have whittled away those sins and the weights that easily beset us. There's a crown for that. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. It's another one that's called the soul winner's crown. Leading people to Christ seeing them saved, even if you had just a small part in it, whether it's giving in missions and that money is used to further the gospel, whether it's you just invited a friend to church and somebody else led him to the Lord, you have a part in that. You don't have to actually bring them to the foot of the cross and have them pray to receive Christ because of your direct influence. No, anything. Are you a soul winner? And then 1 Peter 5, 4. That's a shepherd's crown. Are you a discipler? Have you even finished discipleship? Do you desire to seek God's people grow and mature in their walk? I would even put that in also with, uh, for if you have any kind of part in seeing any children. Children's ministry. Helping them grow. Five crowns in the Bible. What will you have to give your king on that day? Will you be able to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain? Because if you have no crowns to be able to give him, I don't know how you can actually say that if you have nothing to demonstrate that he was worthy to you. So question, as you turn back to Romans chapter 8, and we'll wrap this up. In a half hour. Revelation 4, 5, and 11. I've mentioned it several times over. You want a picture of eternity. There it is. Do you realize that all of those passages we read? That's when you have the redemption of your body. You will have a perfect body that will never sin against Him again, that will never think a wicked thought against Him again, that will never say another blasphemous thing. Look at verse 21. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption, that's our flesh right now, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. 
and he wasn't planning on it. He didn't know I was going here, but everything he said in that intro about groaning and travailing and what actually takes place in, in childbirth, here it is. The whole world, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. For what? Verse 23. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So question, everything we just spent the last however many minutes looking at, do you groan for that day? And is it for some kind of selfish desire to have the suffering stop so that your enemies get what they deserve? Or do you groan and wait for the day that you will be finally adopted in bodily form and you will never sin against Him again because you will have a glimpse, you will have an eternal perspective, you will see Christ high and lifted up now, right now, and it will change the way that you live your life in Christ so that you can finally tackle the problems that you face in the flesh and you will finally be able to declare, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God because I have an eternal perspective on that day that is coming of what my eternity is going to be like and I have decided I am not going to let the weights and the junk of this world and my flesh bring me down to take my focus off of that day. I'm going to be transfixed on that and giving Him glory because that's what glory is. And that is what He deserves. And that is what He wants from us. Now, to prepare us for later. That's worship. That is what it's like to follow hard after God. And I lost sight of that this week. So I think it was... Uh, by design, that we didn't finish Romans 8 last week, because that's where we left off. The day when we exchange this vile body for a glorified body, and we finally get to worship Him with everything. But if we can just get a glimpse of that now, get a taste of eternity now, maybe it'll help us to groan for that day a little bit more. So that was the review supposed to be funny. <laughs> Don't worry. As you can see, there's not much left. Oh, yeah. Anybody need a reminder of what this was? Earnest expectation. What does it mean again? Did anybody have that note down from last week? Neck out. Keep your neck out. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 12, you and I are running a race because we're standing. We're running. It's not the time to sit. So if you're seated right now and you're on the sidelines and you're just a bench warmer, like my story from last week, get in the game. So how do we overcome schizophrenic Christianity? Point number two on your outline. Well, first off, you need to know that you are a work in progress. Continuing with our theme, privileges and promises, we see that we have a promise here. Point one. We see that Christ is a very present help working all things together for our good. Look at verse 26. <coughs> Sorry, choked on my own spit. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. You ever have days like that? You're like, God, I just feel like I'm a wreck. I feel like I'm a mess. I don't know what I need to pray for, but Father, I'm just trusting you. Yeah, Paul did too. He had days like that. There are times where we don't know what we have to pray for. But I love it. Because Matthew 6, 8, you know what we have a blessing of there? Christ knows what we have need of before we even ask Him. And He's able to help us. For we know not what we, have, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. See, when we groan on this earth because we're longing for His Son to get what He deserves, He groans also. 
because he wants to see us more like him on this planet. Verse 27, And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things, some things, all things work together for good to them that love God. So, Christian, do you love God? I'm not talking about, are you saved? Because that verse is usually often used, as is the next couple verses we're going to look at, to talk about salvation. He's not saying, do you love God? Are you saved? No. He's asking a group of Christians, do you love Him? You know what John 14, 15 says? If ye love me, keep my commandments. If you love God, your obedience will show it. And if any man love God, 1 Corinthians 8, 3, the same is known of him. Others will see it too. Are things not working out in your life? Are things seemingly falling apart? According to this verse, we have a promise. All things work together. But it's for them that love God. It's conditional. He is a very present help working all things together. But you have to keep in mind that you are still a work in progress. You're still a work in progress. God's not done with you yet. More on that in a second. I don't want to jump too ahead like I did last week. But look at the second point there. Another promise. He promises that He will fulfill His eternal plan to make us like His Son when the adoption process is complete. You might want to underline that point. I had to stare at that thing again and again until I worded it exactly how I wanted to because this is where a lot of Christians get completely sidetracked. And this is where I need to talk for just a little bit. We're going to talk about it in the weeks to come, but with these verses we're about to look at, we need to talk about a teaching that's going on in the church today called Calvinism. It's sometimes also referred to as Reformed Theology. Oversimplified. And I can't stress that enough, oversimplified, meaning that this is not an in-depth theological study on the doctrine of Calvinism. Oversimplified, Calvinism is the teaching that before eternity passed, or in eternity passed, before the foundation of the world, God predestined who was going to be saved and who was not going to be saved, completely independent of free will. And that Jesus Christ only died for those who he said would be saved before he even created any human beings. You might hear this said in other circles as the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of election. The only thing is, it's completely taken out of context. You'll see here in a little bit. Look with me at the second half of verse 28. So all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow... In other words, God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He does know who is going to be saved and who isn't going to be saved. The only thing is, foreknowledge is all conditional based upon... Or it's all conditional. It's conditional based upon man's free will choice to choose to receive him or not. Just because he knows who's going to receive him doesn't mean that he takes away man's free will. More on that in a second. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be saved. Is that what the verse says? You guys are in verse 29, right? No. He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did, be, did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Okay, very simply put, and we're going to turn to one more passage here, and that'll be it for the cross-references to explain this whole thing. But very simply here, as I already pointed out, it does not say that the predestinated work was that God chose a certain group of people to be saved before he even created a human being, and that everybody else gets the short end of the stick in hell. That's not what it's saying. 
Otherwise, that verse would read, he predestinated all to be saved. No. He predestinated them to be conformed into the image of his Son. As I have painstakingly said for the last several weeks and months, really actually for every introduction that we've done in this study so far, there is a reason why this is called God's playbook for righteousness. Because Paul has systematically orchestrated every single chapter through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be the systematic way to demonstrate what God is doing throughout the entire Bible, specifically in the New Testament. And it's the reason why I put this up on the board. Because chapter 8 has nothing at all to do with salvation. That comes in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 8 is about the Christian's power through the Spirit to overcome the problems in the flesh that those of us who are in Christ have on a daily basis after we have been justified by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we choose to receive in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with our own free will. Romans chapter 8 has nothing to do with the plan of salvation. It has everything to do with the birthrights that you have as a Christian. Does that make sense? That's why he's talking about being conformed to the image of his son. In other words, it was always God's plan back in eternity past that he would have a people group that were in his image that would serve him. Now, holding your place here, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, last cross-reference of the night, and we'll come back and knock out the rest of Romans 8. It will fly from here. That much I do know. You know what's interesting about Ephesians, the entire book of Ephesians? It is synonymous with Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is talking about the birthrights, the privileges and promises that you and I as Christians have in Christ. The entire book of Ephesians is the same thing. The entire book of Ephesians is all about the wealth that we have now that we are in Christ and how we are to walk accordingly because of that wealth of having the Spirit of God in us. And look how he paints this whole thing out in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Where? In Christ. Christian, according to Romans chapter 6, what position are you in? In Christ. And he's talking about all the spiritual blessings you have, a.k.a. the privileges and promises of being a Christian. Verse 4, according as He hath chosen us. Oh, see, well, it must have been predestinated. He chose us. Well, let's keep reading. He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Oh, see, Corey? Yeah, there is predestination. That we should be saved. Is that what it says? No. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You want to know what one word summarizes what we just read there? Conformity. That's what we just read in Romans 8. That we would be conformed to the image of His Son. Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto salvation. Is that what it says? No. Someone help me out. Is that what it says? I had a long week. No. No. Having predestinated us unto the adoption. <gasps> Where have I heard that word before? Romans chapter 8 for those of us who have been adopted into the family of God. You know what's awesome about this? Not to put you guys on the spot, but how old were you guys when you got adopted? It was younger, right? Weren't you younger? What, me? Yeah. Oh, yeah, like five months. You were five months old? Mm -hmm. It's pretty young for you too, right? Yeah, it's four. Yeah. Alright, that was your one for the night. You know what's interesting? For those of you who don't know, and shout out if she's listening, but Nellie, 
Nellie was just adopted last year or this past year. You know what's interesting about that? You guys were very, very young and you didn't really have the choice, but someone adopted you because they loved you guys and they wanted you out of the situation you were in. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about in chapter 7. Remember about that age of accountability? That up until a certain age, when a child knows the difference between right and wrong, they're covered by God. God saves them if something were to happen to them. But you know what was interesting about Nellie's adoption? A judge asked her, Do you want to be with these people? They are willing to adopt you. Do you choose to let the adoption happen? She had to go before a judge in a court and say, yes, I choose to be adopted by them. Choice. It's like that in our world. It's like that in God's world. The adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Jump down to verse 11. So you guys get the picture how this is very similar to Romans chapter 8, right? Which is not talking about salvation. It's talking about the privileges and promises we have now that we're in Christ. He continues further, verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. Now, we didn't really talk about that in the review, but we talked about that last week. I refer you back to the podcast if you missed it, about the inheritance that we receive, those crowns. We have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. So let me ask you guys something. If somebody gets an inheritance, and especially in the context of Romans chapter 8, when do you and I get the inheritance, the crowns? It's when what? We We die or when we get raptured. You get the inheritance when you are formally adopted bodily, which happens at the end of your destination. Anybody here use Google Maps to get places? What does she always say at the very end of your destination? Where? At your? Destination. Hit it, bro. Yeah, you got it. You've arrived at your destination. She says that whenever you get there. The destination is where you're going. It is your adoption. That's what he's talking about. That plan of this adoption happened way back in eternity past because God is so awesome. He still leaves it up for us to choose to be adopted by Him. Ephesians is not a book on salvation. It's about the privileges and the promises we have after being saved. But in case that wasn't clear enough, He keeps going. Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of His glory who first, what did we choose to do with our own free will? Trusted in Christ. And would you look at this here? I had this up here last week to prove and illustrate a different point, but it also helps illustrate this point. The very next verse from what we just read. In whom ye also trusted when... After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Well, when did that happen? In whom also after that ye, what? Believed. Because God never predestinated anybody before the foundation of the earth to be saved outside of their own free will. You have to choose to believe. That is a choice. That is an action you make. And as we studied in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, God chooses to justify those who believe Him by faith. He doesn't count it as righteousness, or it's counted as righteousness, rather. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is (laughs) the earnest of our inheritance. Those of you guys, ask your parents about this if they bought a house. You know what an earnest is? It's a down payment on a house. Whenever you guys get older and you, make a, you go buy a house, you have to put a down payment on it. It's something called earnest money. You know what earnest money is? 
It's you saying, I am deadly serious in buying this house. I'm putting this money down. And if I don't come back and redeem the body of the house, I lose that money. You'd be stupid if you did that. The Bible is saying that the Spirit of God at the moment of salvation, which we got after we believed, after we heard the word of salvation preached, and after we trusted in that word of salvation, the Spirit of God entered inside of us, and that was the down payment. And that was Jesus Christ himself saying, You're mine. I'm coming back for you. It's the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's me. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. A whole bunch of key words showing up there. Look again at verse 23, Romans 8. And not only they, but ourselves also, we which have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our soul. No, the body, the salvation of our body when we get a body like His. That's the inheritance that you and I get at the end of our destination. And it was God's plan all along that that's how He would do it. Does that make sense? If not, we'll cover more Calvinistic stuff in chapter 9 in the future too because He keeps going there as well. But the point to make with it Devotionally, look again at your study sheet. He's going to fulfill His eternal plan to make us like His Son when the adoption process is complete. In other words, you're a work in progress. Philippians 1.6 up on the screen. Being confident of this very thing. Struggle with confidence? This will give you a booster. That He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day we just looked at at the beginning of this lesson. All right. Look at verse 31. What shall we then say to these things, these privileges and promises that God gave us? If God be for us, who can be against us? March through your halls tomorrow with your chest puffed out and your head held high and this sword in your hands with that as your banner as you march through your battlefield. If God is for you, who can be against you? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And who shall lay any charge or anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. You hear that voice in your ear saying you're not good enough, that you're just a failure, that you screwed up yet again? I do. Heard it this week. Who is he that condemneth? Silence that voice. Snipe him. That voice doesn't know what it's talking about. Because it's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for you. He prays for you. He intercedes on your behalf to help you. Because he knows you're an unfinished work in progress. So trust in Him. Let her be. Embrace how deep the Father's love for us truly is. You want a privilege? God is on our side, silencing all voices of accusation and condemnation, whether they be real voices from your supposed friends, from your teachers, from your coaches, or whether they be voices in your head telling you you're not good enough. How deep the Father's love for us is. What is going on here? 1 John 4.4 Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Hey, you know this problem in the flesh you have in Romans chapter 7? Well, because you're in Christ, you've overcome them. You just have to reckon it, keep your eyes focused on eternity, because greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. That's a promise to you. Let it give you the confidence that you need to do what God asked you to do so that you stand, because now's the time to be seated. Seated. Sitting. Point two. Promise. Nothing can ever separate you from His love because we are more than conquerors in Christ. 
Look at verse 36. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Remember, if you suffer with him, all the greater inheritance is coming your way. Nay, in all these things, those things that distract you from an eternal perspective, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Let that give you confidence for tomorrow morning. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No, that is not a passage talking about how much God loves the lost and He wants to save them and nothing will stop the depths of His love from saving a lost person. Why? Because we're in chapter 8, yo. This is to you as a Christian. Which makes this another assurance of salvation that you are eternally secure because nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. You have been placed in His hand. No man can pluck Him out, can pluck you out. 1 John 4, 19. I told you guys last week, if you're struggling with suffering in here, whatever the case may be, read 1 Peter. Great book on that. If you're struggling with feeling the love of God, 1 John 4 is where it's at. We love Him because He first loved us and nothing will separate us from that. Will you bow your heads? Father, Romans 8 is a beast. And I'm so thankful You put it in there for us. We do groan for that day. And we do. Lord, I do want this youth ministry to pray that Your day would come. Not because... We want the suffering and our flesh to end, not because we're, we want our enemies to get what they deserve. But Lord, I pray that with our whole hearts, we would just want your son to get what he deserves. Glory and worship and praise. That he would finally have a people group that are conformed into the image of his son. That his plan that he's had ever since before the foundation of the earth would finally come to fruition. And that we would all have a sinless, glorified body worshiping You, praising You. Lord, we long for that day, and I pray we would continue to long for that day and not let anything distract us in this world. May we not get too comfortable here. And if we are, God, may tonight work as a, a jolt to wake us up out of sleep. We love You, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.